0: Let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll just jump right into what we're going to be talking about today. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the body of Christ and I thank you every Sunday, but I thank you so much for our church, for the teaching we get to hear from Pastor Steve, the wonderfully convicting message today reminding us of how we are to treat our enemies and not for our own gain but for the sake of Christ. And Lord, we also thank you for this Sunday school class. I thank you for our prayer time when we can share prayer requests and lift up one another before the Lord. I just thank you for your work here in our midst. And I pray now, Lord, as we return our attention to the book of Second Peter, that you'll give me wisdom and clarity as I begin to talk again about the lessons of this book. And I pray for each one of our hearts over the next several weeks as we are interacting with some new and convicting messages, I pray that you'll help us, Lord, not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of the word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can already tell, we're finally going to be getting back to our study of Second Peter. I am very thankful for the fact that when I need to be out from time to time, that Rig. And John, both fill in it 's a blessing to have multiple men in our class that are capable of handling the Word of God, and I appreciate always their willingness to step in and teach and also thank you for your patience with me, as we did an unexpected detour into Second John, just because of the press of life and the busyness of things and i 'm going to say something that I say all the time, but then the Lord redirects my paths. I think the detour 's over. I think we 're getting back into Second Peter. And I think we're going to be able to spend some time here. My plan is for the next three Sundays, today and the next two, to be teaching from Second Peter. Then if you heard my announcement this morning in the main service, we will not have Sunday school class on Christmas Day and New Year's. There's not going to be any adult Sunday school classes. We'll all see each other and greet one another. But we won't have class until the new year, until January 8th. And then, Lord willing, I'll be back into Second Peter then. So, as I started gearing up and I started studying, I always go back, particularly when I'm in the early part of the book, and I reread my prior messages. It just reminds me of the flow of thinking and what I've already said. And I was shocked when I did that to find that I have not taught from Second Peter since September. It was September 11th, the last message I gave. And so I started thinking, wow, that's going on three months. I better kind of review what's going on Because we've been away from this material for a long time. And it's very pertinent for me to do that because we're going to introduce verses 5 to 7 today. But if you look at verse 5, at the very beginning of verse 5, it says, Now for this very reason also. In other words, everything that we're going to be covering is predicated on what happened before. And I look back and I first introduced the book in July and I haven't taught on it since September. So I thought it'd be appropriate for us to remind ourselves of the beginning verses so that we're in a position to see where we're going. And then I'm going to give you the outline of the next message or two as we look ahead as to where we're going. So as we do this, I'm going to reread verses 1 to 4. So if you want to follow along with me for purposes of our review and setting the stage for our continuing study, the book began this way. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ When I began going through these, I made it clear, and I stressed it multiple times over many messages, that really these verses are foundational and they plant the direction for everything else Peter is talking about. I wanted to study Second Peter because it has such a timely message to us of being on the alert for false teachers and people who would lead others astray. But these first few verses really are the foundations of the truth that put us on the right path. And so when I talked through the foundations of Second Peter, I just had a couple of points, a three-point outline. And I first talked about the messenger of God, and that was just to reiterate who wrote the letter. Of course, it says Peter, and we believe it was Peter. As I covered it in the introduction, many people find that controversial. But generally, those are people who don't believe that the Bible is a supernatural book anyway, they just believe it's a collection of human writings. But we understand that Peter was making it clear who he was speaking for. He's a bond servant of the Lord. He was one of the apostles, and he identifies himself as that. But Peter was a humble servant who was not laying out his blueprint for life. It's a horrific point of history, and seems that young people don't really understand history. But for most of us, we would understand when we talk about Mein Kampf. Hitler was in prison, and he wrote a book telling everybody what I'm going to do. Peter's not doing something so perverted and twisted as writing out, here's what I want to see. He's giving us God's words. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a messenger appointed by Jesus himself. And so the point is, this isn't just some self-help book that the early churches were struggling, and so we've got a a guru who's going to do a seminar and help them out. That's what we have in America. This is the very words of God. Peter's not giving his own agenda. This is him giving the message of the Lord, and that's critical that we always remember this is God's word coming to us. Now, we believe that when he says to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, the audience was the same audience as 1 Peter. Second Peter three one says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, we believe, and study convinces me that that's correct, that Peter was writing to the same audience, modern-day Turkey. It's around the Black Sea, a group of churches that he was writing to. He knew them, and he loved them. And again, Peter's primary concern was to strengthen the churches because he knew the enemy was on the prow. 2 Peter 2.1, we're certainly going to study this when the time comes, but it's an insight into why Peter was writing. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. That's the overarching concern, and that's what I see happening in America over and over and over again in churches. False teachers amongst the Christians. Not advertising that they're false teachers. Excuse me, I'm going to teach some heresy. Everybody listen. No, they're doing it secretly. They're doing it with kind words. They look nice, they sound nice, but they're leading people astray. They'll pay the price for their deceptions themselves if they don't truly repent and believe. But for believers, it's a danger because Satan wants to render God's true elect ineffective. And if he can have them chasing falsehood, he distracts them from the truth. Now the second point of the foundation that I highlighted is very significant because it's really going to play into what I'm talking about in verses 5 through 7. But it's the work of God. And as Peter presents this over and over and over in these first few verses, he's making it clear that God is the driver of everything in the life of a believer. Begins in the second part of verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind desires. It makes it clear they received it. We received it. It is a gift from God. It's not something that people figured out on their own because they're smarter or more clever. It was a gift. Verse three, and again, I'll highlight these things seeing that His divine power, in other words, God's the one doing all of this. Verse four, He has granted to us. By his precious promises. In other words, Peter is making it clear that God, the sovereign God of the universe, is the one who is the primary operator in all of this. On all these things, I taught in much more detail when I went through it, and you can go back and listen online to the messages. But those who have received is foundational, is important. It's the kind of word that when I first was studying, I kind of glossed over. And yet the reality is, Peter was emphasizing to them where their faith came from. We didn't earn it. We didn't find it under a rock. Jesus lived a perfect life and died in our place, and that was the gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I said this ties in because I'm going to get, when we get into five and seven, I'm going to be emphasizing Peter's telling us to work. He's telling us to use every bit of our being to obey and follow the word and become more like Christ. But he's saying that because God worked first, it's possible. He wants grace and peace to be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord because he knows they already have grace, undeserved favor from God. They already have peace with God. They were his enemies. We were his enemies. Pastor Steve highlighted that this morning, that we were hateful, hating others. And yet when we were like that, Christ died for us and drew us to himself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus that come from God. And verse 3 was where I really said at one point when I taught this originally, something along the lines if you didn't learn anything else from the book and you just internalized verse 3, I'd be happy says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything about that verse is God, God, God. God's divine power gave us everything. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, God is moving in everything But the promises of this verse are profound. Because of what God has done, you have everything you need to live a Christian life, period. It's comprehensive. If it affects your life, if it affects your godliness, you already have everything you need. You may not feel like you have everything you need, but you do. I can't remember if I shared this as an illustration, but because I would not back away from that position, I wasn't hired at one church. Because they didn't like my stance when it came to how I viewed secular psychology and its inputs. Because I was adamant, if it has to do with sin or sanctification, which really is everything in our lives, then God's already given us everything we need in His Word. We don't need the world's wisdom. The world's constantly refining and defining itself. We don't need that. We don't need new discoveries of science. We don't need a new view of right and wrong, a new view of morality. We already have everything. God's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, through His Word. We have enough... Because of what God's given us, to know Jesus, to know His glory, to know His excellencies. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews highlighted this, verse 3 of chapter 1, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Here's the point. We already have everything we need to live the Christian life, because we have his word. We have His Spirit dwelling within us. Peter would affirm 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired by God are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In verse 4, he's just highlighting the nature of His Word God has granted to us by His power His precious and magnificent promises. And because of that, we as His children can be partakers of the divine nature, meaning we can live like Christ and we don't have to go back like a dog returning to its vomit using the proverb to our old ways because we've escaped. God's given us freedom from the corruption of the world. We have freedom from the power of Satan and sin. We need to remember these things because the world will continually call on us. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, familiar verses to most of us if we've been in church for a long time, but it says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Peter's really painting that same contrast. We have freedom from the world's way of doing things. Colossians, Paul put it this way, verse 13, for he rescued us, chapter 1 of Colossians, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To me, the great danger to the church, not so much lakeside, although we're not immune from the world, the danger to the church in America is the influence of the world. Church after church, and I alluded to it when we were teaching, has compromised their views of marriage. They've compromised their views on biblical sexuality. They've compromised their view on issue after issue after issue. Why? Because the world makes itself attractive. Because they have, at times, been succumbed by the siren song that says, well, if you just lower the standards a little bit, we don't have to be so confrontational. We don't have to really plant a fag on every issue, do we? Peter is giving us reminders. He's giving us, in these first few verses... The understanding that we can stand against all of those things. We already have everything we need. God has given it to us. It's not even that we have to find the store where they're selling it. God's given it to us. He's given us faith by the righteousness of Jesus. He's given us grace and peace through the knowledge He has given us about Jesus. He's given us the power And the tools through His Word to live our life. My final foundational point. The messenger of God, the work of God, and then the Word of God. But really the Word of God was just a reiteration of everything I've already said. You see the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Where does that knowledge come from? The Word. Through the true knowledge of Him. Where does that knowledge come from? From the Word. He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Where do we find those promises? In the Word. We have all we need in our Bibles. There's no new revelation from God. We don't need it. There's no new truth. God is truth. Yet over and over, people are saying, look elsewhere. One of the joys of seminary was that I was forced to read a lot of things because most of us are too busy and we don't ever stop to read. I had a gun to my head, so to speak, of assignments and I loved the reading because I love seeing things but I was infuriated by how much bad writing I read from people who were Christians. Now some of that is just no doubt my own prideful arrogance discount that But I was stunned at the number of Christians who were educated and learned who made arguments based on something other than the Word of God. Because at the end of the day, who cares about anything besides the Word of God? That's the foundation. It's not my views on the world, even though I would tell you all my views are right, and of course that's foolish. (laughs) But who cares what I think? What matters is the word of God. That's what Peter is building upon. That's what Peter is laying down as the foundation for everything. Again, we're going to go back and we're going to eventually cover it in chapter 2. I read verse 1 where it talks about there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. In other words, those people who infiltrated churches, perhaps their are sitting next to the wheat while you're singing a song or standing. They want their ears tickled. Why? Because it appeals to what they want, not what they need. And it leads people astray. And the gospel is impacted. It's maligned. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Again, this is talking about people within the church treating other people within the church. That's why it's so critical to us that we be Bereans. I can tell you all I want about what I believe Peter's saying, but you need to look and see if what I'm saying is so. It's what the Bereans did. I try very hard to tell you what's in the word, and I use cross-references from the word. Why? Because that's the authority. That's what matters. But again, America has proliferated people who claim to be teachers of the Bible, very eloquent speakers, many of them very well-educated, and yet they introduce secretly errors and lies That encourages fleshly thinking and fleshly indulgences. The number of people that have believed the lie of God's morality isn't really relevant for today. Go ahead and sin the way you want to. My fear is what Paul's fear was when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I pray that you love your elders and you care about your elders. And I know you show that with me, but always verify what your elders are saying is true to the word of God. In Jesus' words in John chapter 17, he really puts his finger on why I think a book like Second Peter is so critical. Jesus said this in John chapter 17 beginning of verse 14. I have given them your word. He's talking, he's praying to the Father. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. That really is the basis for our study. That's why we're going down this road. Years ago, I remember talking to my daughters about some of my older daughters at the time. She probably had this conversation with my younger daughter, but they were probably high school age. And I was talking to them about some potential legal challenges that were coming after same-sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court. And I was saying it would be very easy for schools like Lakeside or at the time Clearwater Christian, to be put out of business financially if the federal government changes the rules and says you can't abide by your own standards. So for example, if a Christian college like the Masters University couldn't accept federal financial aid because the federal government said you can't receive it anymore, it would be a problem. And what I said to them at the time was I said, I think what you would find if the government ever started stepping on toes that way and putting up those barriers is you'd find that most Christian colleges aren't Christian at all. They'd change whatever they had to change to take the money because they'd just want to keep going. And I'm sure there would be some faithful colleges that wouldn't, but by and large, they would want the world to love them. That describes most, uh, I gotta be careful, that describes much evangelical scholarship. They aren't writing to tell people what the Word of God says, they're writing so that other unbelieving professors will admire their intellect and acknowledge their contributions. So, with all that, that really is the backdrop. I'm gonna go ahead and read our next verses, and I'm going to give you the outline for the next verses. I'm gonna let you know what the challenge is in front of us over the next few weeks. So even though I've already read verses 1 to 4, I'm going to go back and read it again, but I'm going to continue through verse 7 because the next section that we're studying is verses 5 to 7. So here we go. Verse 1, "...Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ." Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Peter very quickly gets into the so what. All those profound truths that you're laying a foundation are supposed to result in something. And as we understand from salvation, the Christian life is a long road. Unless you're like the thief on the cross who comes to faith and then gets to see Jesus, and boy, that would be nice. You're here living with the enemies, living with those that hate God, living with our own flesh that constantly wants to go back to its own desires. And Peter is calling us to an incredibly high standard, and we're barely out of the gate. In borrowing, understanding terminology like we do, I I thought about so much travel in our area as the interstate travel system, and if you're going somewhere, you know what a mile marker is, don't you? You know, you can just count them, because eventually you're getting closer to the goal. And so it's a trivial summary, but in my mind it made sense, and if it doesn't make sense next week, I'll change it. But for this week, it made sense. What we're going to see over the next week or so, and I don't know how long it'll take me to unfold it, I studied a lot on these verses, so I think I understand them, I just never know how, what it's going to look like until I'm starting to write out my message, but these are eight mile markers to Christian maturity. The title could be mile markers to Christian maturity, but we're going to be seeing eight mile markers to Christian maturity, and this is incredibly Practical. This is about us being partakers of the divine nature. In other words, about us becoming more like Christ. And it's interesting, and I will get into this in more detail, but it begins with our faith, which we've already been told is a gift. And it ends with love, which is the ultimate virtue. So we're going to be on a journey. And what happens here is as Peter is laying out each one of these markers, He's saying it should be growth and a progression. And of course, since this is him illustrating things, you could use different words at different points. But by his words, what we're seeing is a progression of sanctification. Each one dependent on the other. You don't go through these things and say, well, I'm going to work on this one. I'm only going to work on that one. No, they're all together. This is what it means to follow Christ. So I think it's going to be challenging to us, but I'm going to go through them really quickly and then we're going to actually study them over the next couple of weeks. The eight mile markers to Christian maturity. One is genuine faith. And again, don't, if you don't write it down, don't, don't worry. I'm going to be going through them clearly later. Number two, moral excellence. Number three, growing knowledge. Number four, consistent self-control. Five is Christ-like perseverance. Six is increasing godliness. And seven or eight are just from the text. Brotherly kindness and then love. And I'm going to be pressing you to do something with all of these. Beginning of verse five. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. And again, I will highlight this even more. But this is effort. This is exertion on our part. This is where we, it's not that we partner with God, God's the king, but this is where God says, okay, I've done this for you now. You start working. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear, faith is a gift. It's not by works, so that no one boasts, but verse 10 is really what we're, focus on Ephesians 2 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them Peter is going to be showing us the character qualities and traits that we need to do those good works that God's called us to do so this is going to be our hard work so begin praying now that Lord would open your eyes Pray for me to be able to do justice to the profound truth that's here. And together, as we walk through this over the next week or two, hopefully the Lord will convict us of where we fall short. So let's close our time in prayer. And I look forward to beginning our study next week. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, you have granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's incomprehensible. Lord, at any given moment, we don't feel like we have all we need, but you promise that we do. In your precious and magnificent promises, Lord, help us believe that. And Lord, in those moments when we don't know how to apply the word or we're not exactly sure what to do, help us remember to pray, as we were instructed by James, that if any of us lacks wisdom, let us ask of you who gives to all generously and without reproach. Lord, when we look in the mirror, we realize each one of us struggles, we stumble, we fall. We would like to picture ourselves in the Christian life as triumphant athletes running through the finish line. But more often, we're wounded and bandaged and limping or crawling. But I thank you, Lord, that even in our less than stellar states, you love us and you care for us. And your promises are still true. And even when we feel weak, you are strong. And even when we feel we don't have enough, you have given us everything we need. And we praise you for that. So I pray as we continue in our study of Second Peter, Lord, that you will remind us of the truths that we have, but that you'll also convict us. And you'll strengthen us. And you'll help us to do the hard work that's necessary to be more like Jesus. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all and I look forward to seeing you next week.